Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Johnson, and today we're hearing from our COVID-19 roundtable. Although many of us are still working remotely and living a large part of our lives through a computer screen, when we look outside, things look, dare I say, kind of normal. Cars are on the streets, patrons are visiting restaurants and businesses, and we're seeing our neighbors, real people, emerge from months of hibernating during the Arizona summer. These are promising signs as more and more Arizonans receive the COVID-19 vaccine, use masks indoors, and continue to protect themselves from the effects of COVID-19. But as we hear from our guests, this is not and cannot be the new normal. Infection rates remain suspended at a stubbornly high level, and our healthcare providers, the same selfless, heroic people who we once cheered and celebrated, are finding themselves nearly two years into a pandemic, battling not only a virus, but also fatigue and the challenges of workforce shortages. Today's podcast is a reminder that the amount of fuel left for the pandemic may be diminishing, but there's still a great deal of work to be done before we stop this fire. Let's listen in. We're back with our COVID-19 roundtable. Dr. Joshua LeBaire, Executive Director of ASU's Biodesign Institute. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Mr. Will Humble, Executive Director of Arizona Public Health Association. Will, good afternoon. Happy October. And Dr. Kara Guerin from Valleywise Health, ER physician. Dr. Guerin, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for being here. Really excited to get this conversation going again. We last met about a month ago. And one of the last questions that we talked about was, let's get out our crystal ball. Where are we going to be in 30 days? Well, that was 30 days ago. Where are we now compared to where we thought we would be, at least in our predictions, 30 days ago? Dr. LeBaire? So I'm pretty sure I was optimistic then, and I thought that the numbers would come down. And the numbers did start to come down, but they did not continue coming down. It's been remarkably persistent as sort of hanging in this sort of like roughly, what is it, 2,200 new cases a day range. And hospitals still have a lot of lingering beds from COVID-19 and ICUs still have 30% of their beds or just a little bit below that. I was expecting it to come down and it didn't come down as much as I thought it might. Not entirely sure why. I have to say it's, it's complicated, but presumably Delta is just very uh, tenacious. Anybody else have any ideas on why did it start coming down, but then it just stayed suspended at a high level? Well, yeah, behavior. But I guess the part that confuses me is I personally think that a vast majority of our population is either vaccinated or they've been infected. And so I don't think there's a lot of fuel left for this fire. I don't know where the cases are coming from. I I guess there must be just pockets of it out there. And those people are still getting infected because by now, Delta must have gotten to most of everybody, at least those who weren't already vaccinated. In the emergency department, we are seeing people that have been infected twice. That is kind of the Delta thing. They had it maybe more towards the beginning. Not always. Some people that had it last summer or early fall. So we are seeing some of those patients and we are seeing, and this doesn't necessarily speak to why the levels haven't gone down, but 
In the past, we saw patients that were in their 70s, 80s, 60s coming in very ill. Now there's a lot of 30s, 40s, early 50s patients. So the patients we're seeing in the ICUs is certainly shifting. It doesn't but, explain why the numbers haven't gone down. But. So, but in the ED, when you see a patient who's been, they say, previously infected, seldom they go upstairs, right? That is true. If you have a second infection, you're normally pretty young and healthy and you kind of come in for the sniffles and for a test. I can't think of anyone that I can actually recall that had a second infection that got admitted and went upstairs. Josh, when we spoke last, one of the things you mentioned in connection to your comments just now about how much fuel is left, you all were going to engage in a serology study. Have you gotten anywhere with that? Well, we were very lucky and we had a nice response of volunteers at ASU. So we were aiming for four or 500 responses and we had over a thousand people give us samples. So we had a really good response there. We're just beginning to plow through those numbers and start running those assays because that's a lot of samples to process. Plus they also did what's called a Qualtrics, which is they answered a bunch of questions for us. And so we're going to compare responses to the Qualtrics. So the jury's still out on that. I gave my sample. I'm not breaking too much confidentiality here since it's me. <laughs> to say that I was obviously positive because I've been vaccinated. But the kicker for me was I actually also must have been infected at some point. And that was a big surprise because, you know, since this started, I have been a really good about not going out. I mean, I've done all the right stuff and B, never sick, not one cough, not one symptom, nothing. But I think I know when I got it. And that's what I think is interesting is that I traveled to Paris between Christmas and New Year's from 2019 to 2020. When I came back, within a few days of getting back, I had this terrible cough, like this really nasty respiratory infection. And remember thinking, this is the worst thing I've had in, as long as I can remember. And I think I got it in the press of people in Paris at that time. And I think it was around much earlier than we realized it was. Of course, I was doing the touristy thing. I was standing shoulder to shoulder packed in that massive crowd trying to see the Mona Lisa and the Louvre. Back in those days, we did that, right? We all crowded together, pushed and shoved, physical contact with four people at once. And of course, they were all tourists from all over the world. So I probably got it back then. Part of your statement is about the study, right? So like for your serology study, you can tell a difference between someone who got the antibodies by the vaccine and a person who got the natural infection. I know that from the literature, but I think listeners would be interested to know yeah, that right. you can so tell that, the difference. So, right. We looked at two different antibodies. We looked at an antibody to what's called the spike protein, and that's the protein that the virus uses to invade our cells. And it's also the protein that's in the vaccine. Every single vaccine has the spike protein in it. But we also tested antibodies to what's called the nucleocapsid protein. It's a surface protein on the outside of the virus. And that's not in the vaccine, at least not in the vaccine that I had. So for me to have antibodies to that protein, I must have been infected because I could not have gotten that from the vaccine. And that's how I know. So we can't tell if people have been both vaccinated and infected, but we can tell if they've been at least been infected. That's very, very interesting. And I think that there's a number of people that have kind of stories. Yours is pretty clear. I was, pretty I was like index case zero for Arizona, probably. Nobody around me got sick at the time. But, but yeah, the other people, oh, I was sick in February and it was really bad and I hadn't been that sick. Like, yeah. Just, uh, wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, there was a lot more in Europe than we realized at the time. And I think, as we now know, most of what happened in New York came from Europe. First patient I treated with COVID came from Europe. Right. Josh, you used a big word. Nucleocapsid. There it is. 
you knew that the vaccine that you got did not have that protein. So therefore, I don't think any of the the vaccines available in the U.S. have nucleocapsid in them. I think there are a couple of vaccines that people might have gotten in other countries that have it, but all three of the vaccines currently available in the U.S. only focus on the spike protein, not the whole protein, just a piece of it. Yeah. Whether our audience got Johnson & Johnson, Moderna's, or Pfizer's, they should be able to get What is the name of this test? This is a research study. So my lab is doing the study and my lab has tests that we run both on the NC protein, the nucleocapsid protein and the RBD protein, which is part of the spike protein. And we specifically designed it that way so that we could tell people who were just vaccinated from people who've been infected. It's fascinating. I've never thought that the best way to get the most immunity is to basically travel around the world and get a vaccine in every place. (laughs) A vaccine U.S., in Europe, and somewhere in Asia. Right. Let's talk a little bit about vaccinations then. We know that the number of cases went down and then kind of stabilized at a pretty high level. What's the latest in terms of vaccination rates in Arizona? Surely we're close to 95% by now in Arizona. (laughs) The numbers are creeping up. I mean, people are continuing to get vaccinated. They're not lining up at stadiums anymore to do it, but the numbers are creeping up. Our our 65 plus population looks pretty good. I mean, I think they're better than 90% vaccinated. And even the next population down, the 55 to 64 population is above 75%. Below that, the numbers are not as high as we'd love them to be. But they're they're going up there. Our our under twenty group is not very good. But then a lot of them can't get vaccine, right? Anyone below twelve can't get vaccine. And that theoretically could change in the near future. Will tell us a little bit about what our federal officials at the CDC and FDA are are debating right now in terms of lowering the acceptable age for COVID vaccination. Well, most of what we know publicly is all from a press release that Pfizer put out. There's nothing that's been published in a journal about the clinical trial for the younger kids. The Pfizer press release, I can tell you about it. It was a different kind of clinical trial. In the first adult clinical trial, there's some people got the placebo. They went out into the world. Some of those got infected, some didn't. And the same with the vaccine group. And you compare the two and you assess the effectiveness. In the kids trial, Pfizer said what they did, looked at the antibody response to the different vaccine doses that they gave the kids. And in the end, they settled on asking the FDA for emergency use authorization for a kid's vaccine that's one-third of the amount of mRNA that's in the adult dose. So it's a third of the adult dose. Uh, They've asked FDA for emergency use authorization. The Vaccine Advisory Committee for FDA is meeting on the 26th of October, Assuming that they go ahead and permit emergency use of the vaccine, then it would go straight to CDC, who has already set their advisory committee for immunization practices up for a November 2nd and 3rd meeting to follow up on whatever the FDA decides. And so my guess is that the FDA is going to authorize and CDC is going to recommend by November 4th. And then the big questions become, what do parents do? 
Do you go to your pediatrician and get a dose there? Are some counties going to be doing school-based clinics or schools themselves, Title I schools and others, like Phoenix Elementary District? Would they be doing like cafeteria-type events, things like that? One good thing I saw from Pfizer is that they are going to be distributing this vaccine in lots of 100. So 10 vials of 10, that's way more. Remember we talked in this podcast about the initial Pfizer vaccine coming in, like we called them pizza boxes, a thousand doses. And if you ordered them, you had to use them quick. Well, this is a lot better if you can just order a hundred. The open question, which I hope both the FDA and CDC answer, is if a clinician has adult Pfizer vaccine and they're presented with some kids, can they pull a third of an adult dose out and use that to vaccinate the kid? It's exactly the same except for the amount of the dose. So that's where we are. I'm anxious to see what's disclosed in the journal article to see the effectiveness. But Pfizer, in the press release they put out, made it really sound promising. And just to clarify, Will, the ages are? 5 to 11. As a parent, I'm super excited. At least one of my children will qualify because I feel like this is kind of the ticket to being able to get out and do something a little more safely. And then, you know, the next step is the younger kids, which I've heard maybe is probably not till the new year. But I echo Will, I wonder how this is all going to happen. You know, I've already kind of started looking around. I know our pediatrician is not going to carry it because of lots of logistical issues and because of workforce issues. They're, they have trouble keeping, and I've heard this from many, many doctors and offices, they have trouble keeping their staff. And that's just one more thing that they can't handle. So the hunt will be on. And a lot of people probably don't know whether they're going to, a lot of places don't know whether they're going to administer it yet or not. The CDC put out a statement that said that they believe that 70% of vaccines for children providers are enrolled. Doesn't mean they're going to start ordering the doses, but at least they're prepared on the paperwork side of things to be able to do those pediatric doses. I think this is a perfect opportunity to do some school-based vaccination. You can get a lot done really fast with these kind of mini pods. There's the paperwork, you know, you got to get parental consent and all that stuff. But, boy, you can hammer out a lot of kids quickly in a cafeteria with the right kind of setup. Will, you mentioned the Vaccines for Children program. Who's in that already? Vaccines for Children program, is it's been in place for decades, really. It's a program of the federal government. CDC administers it. And what it does is make sure that vaccine is available for uninsured kids and kids that are covered under Medicaid, so in our state access. So kids that are on access, which is more than half of the kids in Arizona, are Medicaid members. Let's say if their provider is enrolled in one of the access Medicaid managed care plans, they have to be also a VFC provider, meaning that they are participating in that federal program. So it's been a huge reason why children's vaccination rates have been impressive for the last few decades is this VFC program. And so we have the built-in infrastructure administratively and logistically to get this vaccine out quickly through the VFC providers. But that also requires the parents to make the appointment and go in if it's a regular pediatric visit. And are they going to have special Saturday clinics or are they going to fit kids in 
into the schedule? Are they going to have a nurse in like the waiting room or out in the, since the weather's better now, out in front of the doctor's office prepared to get kids vaccinated as kind of parents drive in? It can get done, I think, quickly. And in H1N1, we did. Maricopa County, for example, Bob England, when he was in charge of Maricopa County, different counties did it differently, but Maricopa focused on school-based vaccine clinics for H1N1, and they really worked well. Problem is, you can't do all the schools on the same. You had to, you know, there was a waiting list so that some schools went first and others were even six to eight weeks after those first schools got their doses. So, yeah, it's, it's on the horizon. I'm confident of that. What do you all think this means for children's vaccine schedules and requirements in schools? Let's say that by early November, the emergency use authorization for kids 5 to 11 is approved. 12 to 18 or 12 to 19 has already been approved. Those are both under EUA still, up to 16. Eventually, all children at least ages 5 and up is fully approved by the FDA. Okay. And at the same time, let's say the courts uphold the ability of schools to require COVID-19 vaccines for children and mask mandates for children if need be. Does that mean that more schools are going to do so? You bring up an interesting point. That's up to actually the state health department because ADHS has the ability and the authority to add vaccines to the school required list. When I was in the assistant director job there in the Napolitano administration, we added chickenpox and meningococcal vaccine And those were the last two vaccines that have been added to the required list for schools. So the state health department director has the authority to open up a rulemaking, make a new requirement as soon as the vaccines are full on approved. So the law is already in place. Essentially, the state health department has the authority to require COVID-19 vaccines within kids who are going to public schools, so long as it's fully approved and assumingly the governor would have to give the okay to do so as well? Technically, no. It's not the governor's call. The statute's clear. The director has the authority. Now, he can decide, or she, to exercise that authority at the jeopardy of their job, but it's not the governor's call. Which is the way it should be. This is a, uh, yes, health, right. this is a public right. health decision. That's exactly decision. right. But a lot of parents are against mask mandates. If you're against a mask mandate, I don't know if you're going to be having your child stand in line for a a COVID vaccine. You can make a vaccine mandate and you could probably get an exemption for that too. Yeah, there's personal exemptions. We have personal exemptions in our state. I don't know a lot about politics, but I can certainly see what Will's talking about. And even if you make it a rule, it it might just end up being more paperwork for certain people. It's probably a a deterrent for some and some who kind of like what we've seen with adults. Like if you want to get in here, you have to get the vaccine. But will it be for everyone? Probably not. If we were successful at doing it and if we could get 80% uptake, that already would be a huge benefit overall to public health, right? If we can get these kids vaccinated. For those kids especially... Even if later on they got a case, you know, a breakthrough case or whatnot, they would have a very mild infection. A lot of modeling going on right now, a lot of people thinking now about kind of where the future lies, because this is going to become endemic. There's really no escape from it at this point. It's going to be an endemic infection. 
If people get the infection or get immune to the infection early in life, the chance of having a less aggressive virus, a less dangerous virus is higher, right? Because getting it early means less likely to have a bad outcome. And then you can acquire immunity younger. And so later on, you're less likely to have severe infections as an adult. That may be an out for us in the long run. You just have to wait a few decades. (laughs) Yeah. Josh, you mentioned COVID becoming endemic. We're talking now about a third wave that has decreased, but is still at a high rate. We're seeing over half of the population fully vaccinated. That number is slowly rising. Hopefully more and more come on as emergency use authorization is approved for five to 11, then full approval comes for all children. I'm curious, is this the new normal right now? We've seen the peaks. We are learning how to live with it as much as we can. There is still room to grow and to get better. I don't think this is quite the new normal. I think we're, we're definitely getting closer to that. We're in this in-between flux state, especially with the high ICU occupancy, the high hospital bed occupancy. I'd like to believe that in a month or so, those numbers will drop. We'll have fewer people with active, serious infections. I'm hoping that the new normal involves some of that. At least that's my, my hope. Man, as a healthcare worker, I sure the hope this is not the new normal yeah. because we cannot sustain this as a new normal. I mean, as, as Josh has mentioned before, like you have to have fuel for the fire. It has to go down at some point. Yeah. But as a healthcare worker, you, we can't, the general we can't keep doing this. It has in other places. I mean, it's worth pointing that out, that in other parts of the country, some of which were really bad a month ago, it, the numbers have come down quite a bit, presumably because that fuel did catch fire and burn through. Hopefully we'll get there as well, and then it'll be more manageable. Dr. Guerin, give us a sense on what it's like right now in the ER and in the facilities that you and your colleagues are are working in. As I mentioned before, we're tired. This just drags on and on. I think what's new, the package, the big package that went through from the governor has made a huge difference for a lot of traveling nurses. So the nice thing is just in our emergency department, we've had a lot of traveling nurses, which is really good because we are basically hemorrhaging staff because everyone is so desperate that places are giving incentives that they've never really given in the past. The problem now is you have two sets of staff. You have people that are traveling nurses. They're getting paid a lot more because they're temporary and we're desperate. And you can have the base nurses that have been there for a long time or longer and are dedicated to your facility and your your patients, uh, at least at Valley Wise, because we have a slightly different population than other places. And it's creating a dichotomy and it's not a great situation and probably as similarly, it's not sustainable. No, I think this is a great stopgap measure, but it is not a long-term solution. And even with this, it's not a solution to be clear, not in our emergency departments, but I have heard that in another emergency department in the Valley, they were at the very basic staffing for an emergency department because they were so desperate. None of the nurses had any sort of emergency training. It's not a good situation. There have been some stop gaps, but the stop gaps themselves are going to create more problems. You're even looking more downstream. The education for nurses, for radiology techs, for everyone has also been stifled. There was almost a full year where no one could do clinical rotations. And there's been a survey out recently about the academic rigor of the survey, but 
there's a lot of healthcare workers who would tell other people go, looking to go into healthcare to be careful. This is a rough, rough job, and I don't know that you want to be in it. So there's a lot of moving parts. It doesn't look great. And one of the frustrating factors also is this is going on, and the general public doesn't really seem to have any understanding of it. People expect healthcare to be administered the way it always has been at your time, at your convenience. It's easy to get someone on the phone, and it's not. Personally, trying to get in touch with the pediatrician is much more difficult. The pediatrician is short-staffed with medical assistance and, and patients in the emergency department are waiting longer and longer. There was an article at Tucson that someone waited 20 hours for an emergency department visit, which is uh-huh. very long and, and amazing. But waits in the emergency department are longer than they have been in many, many, many years. We think back to the beginnings of the pandemic and all of the images coming out of Italy and New York and other large cities and people standing on the balconies and applauding the healthcare providers that are coming back or going to their long shifts to fight this thing. And there was this, this collective goal for us to flatten the curve in order to save our healthcare system at the very least. And that seems to have waned a little bit. And what's left is seemingly frustration. I would argue it hasn't waned. It's almost taken a 180 to some degree. I mean, yes, there are lots of people that are very grateful and very kind, but there's increased in violence in um, hospitals and against healthcare workers. In Idaho, there were stories about healthcare workers that changed out of their scrubs before they went to the grocery store because they were concerned about their safety. Families are frustrated that they can't get in. Patients deny the fact that they have COVID or won't do the isolation precautions that we suggest. They discussing vaccines. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of vaccines and I want every one of my patients, but I have to admit, I get tired. There's only so many times I can have someone yell at me that they're not going to get the vaccine before, you know, I'm like, well, that's my uh, energy for the day. I don't think I have the emotional effort to be able to have this conversation with 10 other patients. In healthcare, we have lots of barriers and you're always trying to overcome things like everyone else, you know, in the healthcare, in the workforce. But this has added a whole nother level of um, no one's clapping for us any longer. That's for sure. If you were to describe your typical COVID-19 patient, what, what does that encounter look like? What's the age of the person? What's their chief complaint? Yeah. What does that look like? And how, what's the outcome of the common ones in the ER? We, in our ER, we basically have two kinds. We have the younger, healthy person that comes in with nonspecific symptoms. Generally, they feel horrible. They're like, I feel horrible. I don't know what to do. And then you say, well, I think you probably have COVID. And the reaction is often, some, it's either, oh, okay, what do I need to do? Or no, I don't. And thankfully, most of them are, oh, okay, haven't been vaccinated. So then we talk about what you could do, you know, in a few weeks, get vaccinated, what you should do in the meantime. And then there's the second part, which before physicians see a patient, they go through registration where they put in their personal information, they see a nurse, someone pops up shortness of breath, and then sometimes they'll put other comments, fever, whatever, and you're like, oh, well, here's the next COVID patient. So it's, it's very much you have the young, healthy who feel horrible or just really need to know. And then you have the generally a little bit older, but I mean, I've, I've treated patients who have died for COVID at the age of 24. So um, that it's not, you know, age who was otherwise completely healthy. Does everybody who gets it, uh, who comes with these complaints, buy a chest x-ray at the minimum? And do they all get a COVID test or not necessarily? So in my practice, everyone gets a COVID test. A portion of patients who say, no, I refuse it. And I explain why, Uh and you know, that's all you can do. 
whether you get a chest x-ray or not is always very kind of nuanced. Right. There's no good evidence. Does it 50% of COVID patients have a normal chest x-ray? So it's all, right. it's whether it's typical or not. And we actually get a good number of patients sent in from places that don't have radiologic capabilities to get a chest x-ray. And I'm always like, well, if you got sent in for it, I'll do it, but right. change it. Probably not. Uh, similarly, we probably overuse antibiotics because we're like, well, it could be COVID or it could be a secondary infection from COVID. So right. second group is just patients who are sick that are pretty clear COVID patients that have to be admitted. So every hospital system is different, but in our hospital system, if you're hypoxic to the point where you need oxygen, you get admitted. So Right, right. And we've also seen an uptake in the monoclonal antibody use, uh, the Regeneron. Um mm. It's the IV formulation, and there a lot more people are accepting of that, which is, in my mind, kind of strange because it's a lot of patients who refuse the vaccine. But when it's time for a monoclonal antibody, they put their arm out, get their IV, and are happy to get it. Which is also under emergency use authorization, whereas the vaccine's approved. Yes, which is super... super frustrating. And, and also if they get sicker, they're like, do everything, you know, put me on the ventilator and all these drugs that have side effects. So, and the Regeneron costs, it's like two grand, isn't it? Cause it's an yeah. IV and the drug and itself it's, costs a bunch. And, and it's a time investment. I mean, if you don't already have a positive COVID test. It takes you at least three and a half hours to go through the process of get the COVID test and do this and get the IV and then you infuse it and then you have to stay an hour, make sure you don't have an anaphylactic reaction to it. And now they say that you can use it for post-exposure prophylaxis. I've not personally given it for that. But I mean, one would argue we're probably all exposed on a regular basis. At this so. point, everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's everywhere in the air that we're breathing now. <laughs> Isn't that willingness of people to like get the Regeneron and all these treatments like that is uniquely the American healthcare system, right? Like yeah. we bring in all the king's horses and all the king's men in order to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But nobody's really investing a ton of resources into asking why is Humpty sitting on a wall in the first place? <laughs> right. Why, why not get him a safety belt? <laughs> yeah. Why not strap yeah. him in? Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't so- fall to begin with. So, Kara, to the point about like <laughs> about the Regeneron and the, the treatments, you know, I'm curious from the three of you, how are you thinking about Merck's announcement? It's not even a is it a press release? Was it even a tweet that talked about the antiviral pill that they're trying to get developed and, and authorized? Yeah, I could just tell you what they said in their press release. And you're right. It was started with the tweet. And so that's where I went to go get my information, which led to a press release. But I couldn't even retweet it because it was so blatantly commercial. It was just like an advertisement. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to retweet this. That's just this is over the top what Merck is doing on this thing. I hope it works. I hope it does do what they say it does. It's an antiviral pill. So if, if taken early in the course of treatment, would be a hell of a lot cheaper than the Rogeneron and maybe about as effective maybe, but a lot cheaper, presumably. Look, they're going to ask for EUA and that'll become available. I think it's a good thing. I hope it's not used... Um, by the network commentators as an alternative to getting vaccinated. Like, well, now there's this pill. Why get vaccinated at all? There's a magic pill that you can take. A lot will depend on what some of the national commentators do on network television with regard to this pill. We'll see. I completely agree. I think it's all a matter of how it's used. I mean, I'm hopeful. Man, this would be amazing. 
But in my experience with Tamiflu, it's a mess. The conclusion for me on Tamiflu is like, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Is it really worth it at all? And my fear is it just becomes another Tamiflu where I will honestly say I give it because I'm supposed to, but am I convinced it works? No, not really. Well, a certain fraction of people will have a milder course, but there's no way to know a priori if you're one of those people who's going to have a milder course and how much milder will it be? And if you can just prevent the whole thing from the get-go, that just seems like such a wiser approach. But there's no journal article out on this Merck drug. No. There's nothing that's published at all. It's just a press release so far. I mean, it's promising news, but you got to temper expectations that, to my knowledge, no studies have been released, no literature. And the clinical trial, quote unquote, even in the press release, was just a few hundred people. So we'll see. One thing's for sure. They'll be able to sell a truckload of them to the federal government for a very profitable margin. There you go. Yep. Anything come to the top of your minds? Any new research regarding vaccines, impacts on transmission rates, or the efficacy of school masking requirements, or any other emerging literature that's been released in the last 30 days or so that's worth bringing up to the audience? Was the Maricopa County study less than a month ago? Yeah, so that was Megan Jean's study. Yeah. They had a nice MMWR paper showing that school districts that required Mask wearing definitely had reduced case numbers of COVID-19 for sure. Yeah, three and a half times fewer outbreaks. So definitely beneficial there. Yeah, that was a very nice study, and it's local. It's from our own school districts here. So That's my favorite thing. It's a natural experiment. I love those. Yeah. You take what's happening in the world, and you measure it, and you you can learn so much about what works and what doesn't work with these natural experiments. And Kudos to your team, Megan Jean at ASU, who worked with Pima and Maricopa counties on that study. And that's terrific evidence. There was a whole morbidity and mortality weekly review. This study was one of them, but there was others that were in there, too. It provides tremendous evidence that the masking works, which we already knew. But it's always better to reaffirm it, especially with local info. And the courts aren't going to use that. I mean, I looked at some of the, the court arguments to the Supreme Court that are going in, and it, many of them are talking about the efficacy of masks. But the court's not going to care about that. What they care about is did the state's constitutional requirement of a single subject and title in the law reflect what was in the actual language of the bill? And Where? so far they have said... Well, so far, the Superior Court, Catherine Cooper, since our last podcast, said, in fact, indeed, that bill that the governor signed, the K-12 budget reconciliation bill, did not meet the standards that are required under the state's constitution and though for those provisions, i.e. the prohibition of mask requirements in schools, are void. Same thing goes for the university budget reconciliation bill that put harmful restrictions on what universities could do. That's voided as well by the court, at least for now. Attorney General Brnovich and the governor and the state legislature appealed Judge Cooper's ruling immediately to the state Supreme Court. And within two hours, the state Supreme Court denied that. They were requesting that they set aside the Superior Court ruling so that they could begin prohibiting mass. And with before 10.30 a.m. that same day, the state Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. We're not hearing that case. 
Cooper's ruling stands for now, we're going to listen to you in early November. And they're going to decide whether the provisions within those budget reconciliation bills that micromanage universities, community colleges, the K-12 system need need to be stricken or void, or they may overturn it. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I suspect th- that they're going to go along with the Superior Court ruling and schools will continue to be able to mask if that's what they want to do. And universities could go back to that original code of conduct that remember ASU put right. out in mid June, which Josh, I don't know if your team was involved with it, but it, I thought it was terrific. Yeah. And you could go back to that now. In practice, the university students have been extraordinarily compliant and we our classrooms. Almost all the students are wearing masks in classrooms and even on campus, even outdoors where they don't actually have to, many of them are wearing masks. So it, it's been pretty good. I think, Students are just so glad to be back in the classroom that they are happy to wear masks and they, they seem pretty good about it. And, our, and, and it's reflected in our numbers. The case numbers at the university are very low. Regardless of what the state Supreme Court decides, we'll have anywhere from 30 to 60 days of an answer. And then the legislative session will come back into play again. <laughs> and we'll go oh, over yay. this once yay. again. Oh, yay. <laughs> ding, ding. Round two. <laughs> I'm curious if the three of you could offer any guidance to audience members of ours who have gotten vaccinated, who are doing their part, but who are eager to get back to some semblance of life as we knew it. What advice do you have for them right now? Well, the weather's getting good now. So this is a good time to go out and do things outdoors, go to restaurants that have outdoor seating, go to events that are outdoors where you can you can be a little bit you know in the fresh air i think i personally think that that's still pretty safe first of all if they're vaccinated already they can rest assured that the likelihood that they'll end up in the hospital or severely ill is very low i think that's still true even with delta i would say if they don't want to get another case stay outdoors as much as you can and I would say go to Amazon and get some of those Binax Now test kits so that when your relatives from Iowa come in who haven't been vaccinated, that you can get them tested. That home rapid test is a valuable tool to answer those kinds of delicate right. family questions that will inevitably right. come up over the rest of this season. I think two things. I think we have to be careful as the holiday season is approaching us. I think that the, the tendency is to want to socialize because we haven't been able to. But with the number of unvaccinated people and, uh, you know, the bigger crowd, the higher risk and whether there's masks or not, I would just be say, be still be cautious. And for me, I think going outside and especially with having unvaccinated kids, once the kids are vaccinated, I think it'll be a lot easier. And I know I'm pretty far on the spectrum of being very careful. But for me, it's also about who, who are you around? Are you around a lot of people that are unvaccinated? Are you inviting them into your home? Are you in a closed room with them? It kind of depends on what's going on around you too. There's no more standing shoulder to shoulder looking at artwork going on. And if there is, you should know who's around you. All right, gang, last call. What are the other items related to the pandemic that our audience should know about? Let's assume that this round table doesn't get together until let's say the end of this calendar year, or maybe the beginning of 2022. What else should our audience know about 
coming into the holiday season about this pandemic. A reminder to those who are above the age of 65, or if you're a healthcare worker, to get a booster, because those are recommended now. Well, now, what if they had the Moderna? Ah, that's a good point. Officially, it's really only been decided for the Pfizer folks. Right. There is some evidence that the Moderna has a longer-lasting antibody response. Good evidence. Uh, So maybe they don't need it as much. I don't know. There was more mRNA in the Moderna vaccine. That's right. Yeah, I, they uh, can get Pfizer off label, Doctor. Yeah, they just I mean, need to Arizona, find a doctor willing to do it. Uh, it's not unprofessional. It's not hard to do in Arizona. You can just go to pretty much any Fry's or CVS and just tell them that you want to get vaccinated. And yeah, I would not object to that person. And the I mean, mix I, and I, match. It's not my medical advice, but but it's a mix and match has been showing really good results. And yeah, yeah, in Europe, yeah. they're using AstraZeneca in combination with Pfizer, and it's yeah. better than the Pfizer Pfizer. Clearly, the infection is driven or prevented largely by having high antibody tires, at least in my view. I think that the antibodies bind to the RBD and prevent invasion. So having a good antibody count is probably good. I would say don't forget to get your flu shot. Yeah, um, very Your good. influenza vaccine, because that I have seen some predictions that it could be a bad flu season. Yeah. I hope not. Um, and I hope that, you know, the washing hands and the masking that is being done is enough. But man, the last thing anyone needs is influenza. And the last thing the healthcare system needs is influenza patients. Yep. I got mine yesterday. Marcus, you can't let me go without my international soapbox. So I will say that vaccine up rates and availability in many developing countries are really improving. So South America, if you look across the world, the COVAX initiative is beginning to work. You can see the results in most continents, the exception being sub-Saharan Africa. Still, most of those countries are still under 5% vaccinated. So continue. I just feel like since my microphone is in front of me, I have to talk about it. And maybe somebody who could do something about that at a federal level will hear me talk about the importance of Keeping our eye on the international community and developing nations, it's important for us to have their back because it's the right thing to do, but also because that is the ticket to preventing new variants. Thank you for adding that. I think that's uh, something that it's easy to get, to get lost yep. when we're in our own little microcosm. But as we've talked about, third dose versus getting first dose to other people, it's an important Right. The other thing is, look, we paid for the research and development on the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. You and me, the people of the United States that pay taxes, paid for the R&D. We should own that intellectual property and we should authorize that to be given to all around the world for those entities that have the ability to produce that vaccine. And we're not doing that. Now, J&J, they did that on their own, so they own that. And But to me, it's like if the taxpayers pay for the research and we paid for the, the manufacturer and we gave them a, a terrific price and they all became millionaires that in the t- upper echelons of those companies, as well as their stockholders, have done very well, the least, the least we can do as a country is demand that that intellectual property get released so that other places in India and others can have an opportunity to make this vaccine with the knowledge that we paid for. So that's my soapbox. Will, stay on that soapbox. We need more voices reminding us that this pandemic is a worldwide problem, and worldwide problems require worldwide solutions. 
Dr. LeBaire, and the team at ASU's Biodesign Institute keep producing the valuable research, innovations, and insights that help us to better understand and prevent this fire from burning. And to Dr. Guerin and all of the healthcare workers who continued this fight on the front lines and behind the scenes, thank you. Although you no longer hear the applause when returning home from your shift each day, know that we see you and are forever grateful to know that you'll be there for us when we need you the most. The story of this pandemic is still unfolding. And fortunately, every day brings a new opportunity to learn more about how we can stomp out the flames and move forward. Our ability to do so will depend on our individual and collective actions. Remember, the choices we make depend on the options we have. So, as we enter into the holiday season, take a moment to give thanks, enjoy the outdoors, and do whatever you can to keep yourself and those around you healthy and well. Oh, and go get a flu shot. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.